Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. I'm your host and Bible guide, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Throughout this COVID-19 pandemic, Christians have been adjusting and finding new ways to encourage and edify one another. One of the things we're trying here at End of the Word is a live discussion program every Thursday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. The program is called Going Deeper Online, and in it I will facilitate a conversation about the previous week's readings in the RMM Bible Reading Plan with several of my friends and fellow users. If you join us live on the End of the Word YouTube page or the End of the Word Facebook page, you can submit questions, and we'll leave some space at the end of each program to address them. You can also send in your questions over the course of the week via the Facebook page. Whether or not we keep doing this after the end of COVID-19 or not, only the Lord knows. But it is a privilege to open the Bible together and to hear from one another what the Lord is saying through His marvelous Word. Thanks be to God. So without further ado, welcome to another episode of Going Deeper Online. Hey there, friends. Pastor Paul Carter here from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Aurelia and the host of the End of the Word podcast. And we are glad that you've joined us for another night of Going Deeper Online. Uh, I'm joined by some fabulous friends, my old friend, Pastor Mark Bertrand from Southwestern Ontario, Miranda Webster uh, from the deep heart of Texas. We have Jesse Stewart from uh, Glendale, Kentucky, and uh, Peter Mahaffey, Pastor Peter Mahaffey from Toronto, Ontario, Canada. So welcome to you again. Thanks so much for being with us. Well, I did say that uh, that I wanted to get right into it, but before we do that, uh, Miranda, can I get you to open us in prayer? Absolutely. Thanks That's so great. Father, your word says, as the deer pants for the water, so our souls pant after you. And we pray, Father, that you would make that true, um, that we would recognize our absolute need for you, that we need you more than we need breath, then we need water, then we need food to sustain us. We need your word to um, work in our hearts and our minds. So we pray, Father, that in this time that we spend together, that you would give us um, a revelation and understanding. You would illuminate your word so that we can understand that we would have hearts to receive what you have to say and eyes to see and ears to hear. And we need your help to do that. Thank you that you've given us the Holy Spirit to help us and your word, and just one another, the church, the gift of the church. And we thank you that you've allowed us to know you. It is in your good name we pray. Amen. 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 Uh, well, I want to get right into it this week. And one of the things that uh, we didn't do in the first two weeks, this is our third attempt at this, and I imagine we'll figure something out every week. Um, but one of the things I thought probably we ought to do to be helpful to our folks is introduce new books and new letters as we encounter them. Uh, for those of you who are just trying to figure out the RMM Bible reading plan, it's uh, it's not rocket science. Uh, all Bible reading plans are good. Whatever plan gets you reading your Bible is the best one. Uh, but the RMM has some particular beauty and magic to it. It has us uh, feeding in four different parts of the Bible every day. So it's a four-column system. I think the first Bible reading plan I ever tried to do uh, was just it, the plan was basically you read four chapters a day. And I started in Genesis. I think I was about 11 at the time. And uh, I think I made it into about the eighth chapter of Leviticus before I, I decided that perhaps Bible reading plans weren't for me. But uh, the, the beauty of the, of the RMM Bible reading plan is it has you in four different places. Um, and so that can help you get through 
uh, books of the Bible that, that maybe are, are just a little harder for the first time reader. Uh, but it also over time has this beautiful effect of um, showing you the interconnections, showing you how the Bible is an interrelated whole. Um, I don't, I would challenge you. I'd almost want to give you $20 if you could do the RMM Bible reading plan for four years in a row and not be totally convinced that at the end of the day, the Bible has a single author, uh, because that's just one of the things uh, that you see over time. But as a result of being in four different places uh, every day, almost every week, we are starting at least one new book or one new letter. And so I thought one of the ways we could be helpful is just by introducing those. So uh, we, this was a funny week in that we started a bunch of new books and letters. So this is a, this is a perfect time to start this new habit. And uh, one of the books that we ran across this week was the book of Numbers. And as Providence would have it, Brother Mark, you're preaching on Numbers right now. Is that right? I am. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, give, us, give us the three or four minute introduction to Numbers. What is this book about? Why in the world is it called Numbers? What a weird name for a book anyway. And, uh, and why in the world would anybody living on the other side of the empty tomb be reading this book? I think if we uh, used in our English Bibles the title that uh, was given by the Hebrew Bible, it would be probably less daunting because it's the Hebrew title is Into the Wilderness, which probably describes better. That sounds, that sounds like a good name for a podcast. Yeah, in, Into the Wilderness. <laughs> Actually, my, my sermon series is called Into the Wilderness, but... Uh, uh, it, it's called Numbers because it begins with four chapters of censuses, and there's a census, a couple census closer to the end, and those tend to turn people off pretty quickly. It's the only book, I think, in the Pentateuch that has both census and narrative and laws. It, it's kind of a, a, a collection of a number of different things. But just to introduce a couple things that, that I would have a person look for, um, one is the centrality of God um, physically. I, I think that uh, the Israelite people were largely a pre-literate culture. They didn't have papers and pens. They, most of them didn't know how to read or write. And so God gives them things in a visual sort of sense. And I, I think a lot of what God created uh, in the tabernacle and, and all of those different symbols uh, he doesn't tell them this is what this means. I think it's intended to get the people talking and go, what, why do you think we do it that way? Why is this made of bronze and that's made of gold and mm -hmm. these bases are silver? And, and I think that's intentional. So I think it's good for us to be thinking those things before we go back to the commentary to see what the expert says. But the big thing I would say to you about the book of Numbers is it, it's a book of plot twists. I mean, if you didn't know the story, here the slaves of Egypt are brought out by the mighty powers of God, brought through the Red Sea, Pharaoh's back is broken, they're brought to the base of Mount Sinai, they're trembling with fear before the God who speaks, they get ten commandments, they build a tabernacle, they set off in jubilation for the promised land, and a few weeks later when they get there, the first plot twist comes, they won't go in. Uh, they say, they accuse God, God, you're trying to kill us. And so they refuse to, to go into the promised land. And, and then the second plot twist is that when God sends them out into the wilderness for 40 years, not only does he keep them alive, they thrive. And that second generation that comes forth, their children come forth as a faithful generation that is ready to fight Og and Bashan and march into the promised land for victory. So there's twists and twists. But I mean, through the whole book, don't get turned off by those early censuses. Those have a purpose. Um, 
but uh, be excited because it's filled with great narrative. I mean, Moses whacks a rock and doesn't go into the promised land. 12 men go to spy on Cain and 10 are bad and two are good. Balaam's donkey talks. The whole Balaam, Balak, stop blessing them, stop blessing them. Then he says, well, I'll curse you for free. All kinds of great stuff in Book of Numbers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting, Mark. I was, uh, I was preparing a podcast um, for Psalm 78 today. And uh, of course, in, in Psalm 78, uh, Asaph basically, he, he refers to this whole history. As, he says, you know, there's a riddle, there's an enigma here. Uh, there's, there is something to see. And he, he sort of tells the story in a couple sweeps. And he believes that a careful review of this story actually reveals this fundamental principle in our relationship with God. And so even though we avoid this story, it, it is interesting what a pivotal role it played in the worshiping community in the Old Testament, Asaph was, you know, David's worship leader. But then the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, he tells us we should be reading it too. Yeah. These yeah. So we, are written down yeah. as a warning for you. That's what yeah. Paul has to say. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So important ground to cover there uh, for us, even if it does feel a little bit foreign. Um, and, and I don't know if anyone else wants to jump in there on numbers, but uh, another really uh, interesting book that we encountered, although far shorter than numbers this week, uh, is the little letter Philemon. And uh, I would like to argue, but I'm going to let Peter do it, but I'd like to argue that actually pound for pound, there probably isn't another book in the, in the Bible that has had more social change per word count uh, than uh, the little letter of, of Philemon. So Peter, uh, open that up. Tell us, tell us a little bit about this letter and tell us why it, it went off like a stick of dynamite in uh, another in world. Uh, interesting book yeah, so, um, far shorter than numbers. So Paul uh, Paul wrote the letter with Timothy, uh, but Paul's definitely the primary uh, person in the letter. And he's um, if if you were to if I were to give a theme to the the letter, it, it's really it's a short letter about reconciliation um, and and the power of the gospel to transform relationships, specifically the the, the dynamic of relationships uh, between different. Um, powers, right? Different uh, positions in society, so to speak. Um, so Paul's writing to this fellow Christian, Philemon. Uh, he seems to be, from what Paul writes, a very godly man. The church seems to be meeting in his home, so he was probably a little bit more wealthy. Mm-hmm. But he, he writes um, to Philemon because somehow, and I don't know how this all came about, uh, Onesimus, who is who is Philemon's slave, ends up getting away or escaping. And somehow he comes into contact with Paul, most likely in Rome, and he comes to faith while he's there. And Paul writes Philemon, basically wanting to appeal to him and to plead with him in a, in a very brotherly, affectionate way that I'm, I'm going to send Onesimus back to you, but I want you to embrace him as a brother and no longer as a slave because he's come to faith in Christ. So he says, for example, in verse 15 and 16, for this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, but no longer as a bond servant or slave, but more than a bond servant as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you both in the flesh and in the Lord. Um, so you see this incredible dynamic that Paul has with Philemon yeah, he begins the letter in, in verse 8 that he says, you know, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, 
yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. So you see this beautiful relation, relational dynamic between Paul and Philemon, but he's appealing to him to say, listen, this, this individual, Onesimus, who was a useless slave to you at one point, he's come to faith, he's been, he's been very useful to me here in Rome, and I'm sending him back to you because he's going to be useful to you again. No longer treat him as a slave, but as a brother. And he, he goes even so far to say in verse 17, receive him as you would receive me. So in the way you would receive the Apostle Paul, I want you to receive this slave of yours. Um, so it's just this beautiful picture of what the gospel does, um, breaking down those barriers, so to speak. Now, Paul doesn't outright condemn slavery in the letter. But in light of the gospel, you can see that Paul's not really for it. Um, I think what you could say is uh, Paul undermines slavery without ever outright condemning it. Um, he, he undermines it, but he doesn't necessarily condemn it. But I think what this does is, is it, I think it's incredible that this letter, one, got into the New Testament canon in God's providence. Just, you know, but I think what it does, is it begins to direct the church um, in the path of condemning slavery. And you see that in the next few centuries where several church fathers, uh, several Christians are already condemning slavery. You have Christians who are buying slaves, but then freeing them. Yeah. So I think this kind of lays the groundwork in that sense. Yeah, I wish I could remember the quote. I, I was doing some research recently on slavery, and uh, one author that I read said that there's no country uh, in the civilized world in human history that has outlawed slavery without having first embraced uh, Christianity. Hmm. I, I, in fact, I wonder if, it, yeah, you know what? I, well, I'll check on this. I wonder if it was Rodney Stark in The Triumph of Christianity. Hmm. I think it was. He had a whole section there. But certainly Christianity was understood as, uh, as a subversive force uh, when it came into contact with, with uh, civilizations that made use of slavery. Mark, you were sort of remarking, I think it was last week, on um, slavery as it's treated in in the Old Testament, is that right? Uh, yes. Yep. Yeah. It's. I mean, it's a complicated topic. Uh, people will often say, uh, you know, why doesn't the Bible ever come out and say simply slavery is an abomination? I suppose the the closest it comes is in First Timothy, uh, where it you know Paul's talking about a number of things that are un unlawful, and it it mentions in verse ten. So First Timothy one ten. Uh, enslavers right alongside of liars, perjurers, etc. So to make a person a slave is is declared to be outright a sin. And whenever, uh, but, sorry to interrupt you, so sorry, it was just thinking of another yeah. example would be in Leviticus when it talks about if you kidnap a person, yes. that's an yeah. abomination against the Lord. Right. So that, and I think Mark, and I, I'm sorry, I'm interrupting you, Paul, but I think Mark too was talking about the difference between um, American slavery and the slavery of the Bible and how like yeah. American slavery is ground zero for an ethnic um, discrimination and prejudice, mm -hmm. whereas the biblical slavery was almost like a debtor's prison. Is that correct? Uh, of this idea of- Well, and, and the result of losing wars. Uh, one historian yeah. I read said that the at the time of the New Testament, the majority of uh, slaves in the Roman Empire were Franks. They were, because of course, Julius Caesar um, you know, when he went into Gaul, uh, brought, came back to Rome with uh, a, a number of slaves that had never been seen before, like the sheer volume. Uh, they would have been, you know, what we would today call Western Europeans. 
so yeah, slavery in the Bible had nothing to do with the color of your skin. It had everything to do with whether you lost a war or whether you went bankrupt. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think it's very important when we get talking about slavery in the Bible, there are complicated issues in scripture and there are simple issues in scripture. And I don't think we serve anybody well when we try to make complicated issues very, very simple. So anytime mm-hmm. I have to talk about slavery, I say this is a complicated issue that probably can't be discussed in one sermon or in 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. But if you're invested and you want to take a look at how, how Christianity has impacted slavery, um, you know, but I, I think it's always important to be up front, which is why yes, last week when we were talking about the Old Testament, to say, you know, God does not forbid slavery and gives laws that, mm-hmm. that you know, uh, inform the people on on how slaves are to be treated, you know. So it's a complicated. Yeah, and it, it it's and it's even more complicated sometimes than our best apologists make it because, you, you know, I have heard and it's true. So and it's worth saying, and I'm glad we said it. We should say it again that the slavery we're talking about in the Bible is not the same as American chattel slavery, which was race. It's absolutely true. That being said, there are aspects of Old Testament slavery which are still quite distasteful. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, for example, while all the things that we cite in the Old Testament, you know, how it was term limited and how, you, you know, you weren't allowed to be harsh. True, true, true. But all of that applied to slaves that were Hebrews. Um, it, it did say that you could make slaves of the nations that, that the Lord uh, sent them against in a punitive sense. There, one of the things that we have to wrap our heads around is that in the Old Testament, uh, the covenant community was a was a kingdom with a king. God was the king. And they were the sword in the hand of the king, and they executed God's wrath on the nations. And sometimes that involved the total extermination of nations, and other times the enslavement of nations as greater and lesser expressions of God's judgment. And obviously, that doesn't apply in the New Testament. We are not a a nation in that sense. We are people drawn from every nation. But the, the amazing thing of Philemon is that a rich free man would be told to treat a slave now, not just as a brother, but as if he were the Apostle Paul, because he has come to faith in Christ. I mean, that that does, over time, explode the entire rationale for slavery. It's, it's marvelous. And you know, it's interesting, like, you know, Roman slavery was horrific, and it, it seems like even though Paul doesn't condemn it, he's trying to um, redeem it, in a sense, help Christians think about what does it look like to be light in this Roman world? Because you have pagan Christians who have slaves and the the master and the slave are coming to faith. And that's why in Ephesians six, right? Where Paul talks about the relationship between masters and slaves. He, he tells the slaves to submit to their masters as unto the Lord. But then he also tells their masters to not be harsh with their slaves because now they're both one in Christ. There's not neither slave nor free. Right. And, and what's interesting is that very on in early church history, you actually have some bishops in the church who were yeah. former slaves. That's right. Now, so, I mean, I don't, I've never been able to verify this, but there is a strand of church history. I don't know whether you call it church history, church legend, that Onesimus at one point was the, the bishop in Ephesus. Has anybody else encountered that in church history? I've never been able to verify it. Yeah. yeah. Have you as well? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's fascinating. And I mean, that, that is that's the beauty of Christianity. At some point, it would be great to have a conversation about the way Christianity transforms a culture, because it's never through insurrection. It's never through direct confrontation with the powers that be, right? Like, so Peter is telling his people to honor the emperor. That's Nero, uh, right? Like Paul is saying, you know, obey the authorities. 
it's like what but but at the same time the gospel is basically undermining the foundations of of all society opposed to christ mm-hmm. and uh, so it's 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 never direct assault but it but it's always this subversion and you see that in the case of slavery uh he doesn't say slaves run away um you know in the middle of the night attack your your masters nope uh he tells them to love them and conduct themselves in a way that their masters become christians Mm-hmm. And, and and we're going to do it that way. It's it's absolutely fascinating. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Now, Jesse, just to uh, to rope you in, you're preaching through Hebrews. You and I have had this conversation a couple times because um, we have some some favorite commentaries in common. But uh, how far into your Hebrews series are you? We're in the tenth chapter right now, halfway through. Perfect. So I'm taking you all the way back to chapter one to talk about stuff you've probably forgotten or hopefully. <laughs> you can still remember, but uh, Hebrews was one of the other books that, that we started, one of the other letters we started this week. Can you give us an introduction to this? This is one of my favorite uh, letters, and I would argue one of the most relevant letters, again, uh, in our time. Yeah, amen. Well, absolutely. The book of Hebrews is really a sermon about uh, Jesus and how he's better. And so it's a great book that helps us understand who Jesus is. Uh, it says uh, right all the way through that he's better than angels better than Moses and Joshua. He's a better high priest who offered a superior sacrifice. He brings with him a better covenant. He grants deeper cleansing of the conscience. He restores access to God's presence in heaven through the veil of his flesh. Uh, He obtains a greater inheritance for us as his people. He's a better mediator. And the list goes on. Jesus is better. That's what Hebrews is all about. Should we vote on that? I agree. I agree. My hand is in the air. Okay, we're we're unanimous. Jesus is better. Amen. And so Jesus is, is better. And, and because of his superior, uh, superiority, uh, we're exhorted not to fall away, mm-hmm. not to fall away because he's also, um, he's also a judge and, um, the judgment that one would follow, one would incur from falling away or apostatizing, uh, would, would be exponentially greater eternal than the, the judgment under the Mosaic covenant. But it's also uh, a great book that helps us become good Bible readers. Uh, Hebrew yeah. really functions as inspired commentary on yeah. the Old Testament and especially on Leviticus and the book of Psalms. Yeah. And it teaches us how to read the Old Testament with new covenant eyes. And it helps us to see how the new covenant realities uh, were really all foreshadowed and anticipated already in the Old Covenant. And we can look backwards in order to understand uh, what we have now in Christ. So obviously the, the, there's so much more to this rich book and I'm just scratching the surface, but that's Hebrews in a nutshell. Did you say you're in chapter 10, right? We're in chapter 10. Yeah. yeah. Is it, so I, I think it's true. I should have looked this up before I, I said it, but the book, or the, the epistle to the Hebrews also contains the longest continuous citation from the old Testament in the new Testament. Isn't that true? Okay. You might be right. Yeah. I mean, from Jeremiah 31. Yeah. It's uh, it, I mean, it's, you're absolutely right. It, 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 it is almost a, a commentary collection on Old Testament texts. It's absolutely marvelous. And, and part of the concern um, is, is for people, when we talk about falling away, specifically it's falling away back into Judaism. Uh, and that's part of its relevance today, is uh, that there are there are always, there, in every generation, there are Christians who want to fall back into the, in, into the ritualism, into sometimes the mysticism of Judaism, uh, one of the main directions that people fall away from Christianity is backwards into Judaism um, and, or, or a Judaizing version of Christianity. Right. So it's, it's relevance. It's one of those letters that is new every morning. 
Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. right on. Well, uh, so as I, as I mentioned, we encountered a ton of, of uh, new books and new letters this week. And uh, perhaps the most controversial of those in terms of uh, its meaning or what it's all about uh, is the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon. They can't even agree what it should be called. Um, Song of uh, Songs. I'll take a stab at this one, but then you guys can jump in and correct and clarify whatever I've, I've said wrongly. Uh, but I think a decent argument can be made that there is no book, uh, maybe other than the book of Revelation, uh, there is no book in the Bible, the, the meaning of which is more debated than Song of Songs. Uh, interestingly, uh, the, t- the two main options are, is this a book about marriage or is this a book about Jesus? Uh, or said another way, do we read this in a straightforward manner or do we read this allegorically? And uh, interestingly, while we have a real distaste for allegory today, the majority uh, interpretation across history Uh, was that it should be read allegorically, that it was a love story about God's love for his covenant people. That's the way the Jews understood it, the majority of Jews. In fact, one of the best ways to get in trouble if you were a rabbi uh, back in Old Testament times was to suggest that the Song of Solomon was actually an erotic poem, a love poem. Uh, That could get you in big trouble. Uh, the, The standard interpretation was that it was about Yahweh's love for Israel. Christians, by and large, uh, went with that as well. And the majority of interpreters understood it as uh, an allegory, an allegorical poem expressing, uh, you know, Christ's love for the church. However, there's always been a minority opinion that it was, that it was in some sense, a, a love poem. And, uh, and that's starting to become, again, I would say that is now again, or that's now for the first time, the majority opinion of, of uh, scholars. And uh, while I think some folks struggle with the idea of allegory, uh, I, I think the, probably the best way to understand it is that it's, it's both, that on, on one level it is a love poem. Uh, it, it seems that Solomon, even though he had many, many wives, uh, and most of those marriages were political, right? They were, they were alliances, geopolitical marriages as opposed to romantic marriages. But somehow in the providence of God, he ended up falling madly in love with one of his wives and had a torrid love affair with this young girl to whom he was married. And that's interesting, too. He fell in love with his wife. He was married first and fell in love next, which I think is interesting in and of itself. Uh, but then I think there's, there is a sense in, in which the Song of Songs is also to be understood as an allegory of uh, God's love for his, his bride. And if that is the case, then Song of Songs is by no means the only book in the Bible uh, to make use of that metaphor. Uh, the, the metaphor of God being a husband and his people being the wife I mean, you see that in Hosea, you see that in Ezekiel, you see it in the New Testament. John the Baptist refers to himself as the best man. Jesus is the, is the groom, the church is the bride. The Apostle Paul refers to himself as a friend of the, of the groom, almost a matchmaker. He says in 2 Corinthians 11 2, I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present yourself as a pure virgin to Christ. So Paul says, you know, to the church, a, a bride of Christ, with a wandering eye, you know, if, if you make a muck of your marriage, I'll feel responsible because I'm, I'm the guy that introduced you to your husband. Uh, so again, this, this metaphor is, is everywhere. So I, I would be of the opinion that it's, it's both, that it is a celebration of, of love uh, between a husband and a wife, and it is simultaneously um, an allegory about Christ's love for the church. Okay, that's my interpretation. That's my introduction. Correct me, uh, angrily rebuke me, 
uh, clarify what I've said there and, and flesh it out for me. Well, amen. <laughs> Everybody agrees. That can't be the first time in human history. Go ahead, Miranda. So I, I don't have anything to disagree with, but I have a fun fact. I, and you can, I think that amongst all of these experts, you can help me if I'm wrong here. But I, I think that when young boys were being trained, they weren't allowed to read the Song of Solomon's Song of Solomon because of its illicit nature. Is that correct? Is that true? Do yeah. That... Well, so certainly there have uh, there are a couple books in the Jewish canon that were treated that way. Um, young men weren't supposed to read Ezekiel until they were over thirty, uh, for fear that they would make a hash of of all of the the, the rich apocalyptic imagery, and and then similarly there was kind of an age recommendation associated with Song of Songs because. The fear being, if they took it the wrong way, uh, it could stir up, you know, lust before the time. So, yeah, that is, that is true. Yeah, and, think, and, go ahead, Pip. Um, no, I, I just think um, some people freak out with the word allegory. I don't yeah. think there's a reason to. I mean, I realize there can be abuses um, yeah. of it. But I, I often will use the word symbol. Um, this is what C.S. Lewis talked about quite often, that, that everything in life is symbolic of something deeper. Yeah. So, you know, when we look at a mountain, none of us just simply, you know, if we go to the, um, uh, why, why can I not remember Canada's, uh, the Rocky mountains. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, there you um, go. <laughs> if we go to the Rocky the mountains, Himalayas of Calgary, yeah, you know, um, none of us look at a mountain and go, Oh, look, it's just, it's just rock and, and snow on top and trees. No, we, we, yeah. we see that a, a mountain captures something more glorious than itself. It, it conveys certain ideas right? Majesty, greatness, power, strength. And, and we, we do that with animals, right? They're like a chihuahua conveys a certain reality. A lion conveys a certain reality. Like no father tells his son, I want you to grow up and be like a chihuahua, right? He, he tells his son, I want you to grow up and be strong and courageous like a lion. Yeah. And then we see that, of course, with even uh, things in the church, right? Baptism, it's a symbol of something deeper. And so, and then Paul does that in Ephesians five with marriage. Yeah. Um, it's marriage the, the the love between a husband and wife is actually not the, the real thing. It, it, it conveys the real thing, right? Christ's love for his church. And so when you think about the intense erotic language in song of songs, well, it's, it is true that it's a husband and wife, but it, it's, you it can't reduce it to that. It, it's, it's a symbol of something deeper. And if you look at Psalm 45, um, if you compare Psalm 45 to the Song of Songs, um, you'll see just how similar they are with the kind of language. And, and Psalm 45 is completely messianic. So, um, yeah, it's interesting what different generations struggle with in terms of the Bible, right? Like we all have our our cultural defenses against a, a straightforward reading of the Bible. Uh, in our day, we we have an allergy to allegory, and, and some allegory runs amok. Um, I was, uh, I was reading up on, on some of the different historical interpretations, and some allegory with respect to Song of Solomon was ludicrous. Like, uh, it was common to believe that the left breast of the, of the young bride represented the Old Testament, the right breast uh, was the New Testament, and the sachet of perfume was Christ. I'm like, I don't think so. <laughs> I just... That's can't imagine. What are the, the goats or the, you know? Yeah. Oh, you could go, you could get into a lot of trouble there. And, and so I think there's, there's allegory run amok. And so as a result, I think our generation reacting to that has an allergy to allegory. 
but, but there was also in the medieval um, church, there was a real allegory to any notion of celebrating romantic love. And, and there was a refusal to see that, uh, that, that this was something that God would bless, uh, that this, this would be something that would be in the canon. And so every generation has its allergy. Yeah, go ahead, Jess. So just a thought about that. I think the allergy might actually be um, to unwarranted speculation uh, yeah. tethered to the text. And I think that that's where allegory runs amok is if it has no relation to authorial intent, like yeah. you, you can get anything. And yeah. like, but, but in Galatians four, we've got the word allegoreo, allegorumina, right? Mm -hmm. And Paul's doing that. He's making a connection between Sinai and uh, the, the slave woman and the old covenant and then uh, the new covenant and Sarah and he's doing all these things. And there's no, there's no issue with that because each of those uh, in Paul's mind correlates to um, the original intent of the author. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I mean, typology is a type of allegory, right? In fact, it's only recently that those words have meant different things uh, for most of Christian history, typology and allegory were synonyms. Um, so I, I think really what we're saying is we have an allergy to allegory divorced from any obvious meaning in the text. Like there's no indication in the text that her left breast means Old Testament and her right breast means New, New Testament. Like there's, if that's what it means, um, I don't know how that could have been communicated any worse. Uh, so there, there's no connection there. But, but our natural connections make sense. Uh, you, you were talking about C.S. Lewis. I thought John Piper said that, which now makes me think John Piper probably got it from C.S. Lewis. Piper says that, that all of life is allegory and, and that everything beautiful in life is particular allegory. And he said that actually, if, if we don't understand that all of life is allegory, we will read the Song of Solomon and we will make a hash of it as a man wearing spikes on his feet instead of bedroom slippers. And uh, I thought that was great. Uh, but he's basically saying... You have to understand that marriage is allegory. You have to understand that sex is allegory. It was intended to be. All of life on earth is intended to speak to heavenly reality. Um, so I, I think that's a useful perspective as well. Well, William Tyndale, since we're on this allegory and typology thing, William Tyndale, translator of the, uh, of the Bible into English, uh, said, and this was, I think this was particularly in regards to preachers and typology, he said, um, uh, if, if we find types in scripture, which we have no biblical warrant for, it's not that they do not exist, but they are as much use to the church as tales of Robin Hood. Mm -hmm. I, I, I like that. That was, that was helpful. That's a good warning for us in our Bible readings to be reflective and to think. But before we take it into the pulpit, recognize if, if you can't find scripture supporting, you know, uh, you know, the sachet being Christ, you probably don't want to preach that. Now, we're a bunch of pastors and a, and a, and a doctor, so uh, we are uh, probably speaking with a level of assumption that, that might not be helpful. Anybody just want to give a, a street-level definition of typology? Sure. Uh, let me do that. Uh, I'm living in Numbers, Leviticus, and Exodus right now. I always define typology as as uh, the shadows uh, that are cast um, by, by the New Testament, and they're cast backwards into the Old Testament. And anytime you have a shadow, if you know 
my shadow, if you go for a walk with me on a sunny day, I have no neck. You know, <laughs> the reality is I do have a neck, but my, my head looks like a block of wood because the shadow is sometimes distorted. Sometimes it's really long, sometimes it's really short, but the shadow uh, it indicates that there's a reality uh, that has cast that shadow. And so when we see a type, uh, a type is pointing towards an anti-type or the fulfillment, the one who will be greater, the one who will be better. And true types in scripture um, are, are there on purpose. Mm -hmm. God actually sowed them there, planted them there with intent, which actually makes those types, the primary purpose of them is the anti-type. The secondary purpose is, is what they're serving in the text. Anyone else want to throw something in there that would be clarifying for the average Bible reader? Because if I would say this, the, a lot of evangelicals today don't understand typology simply because they don't read the Old Testament. Um, eventually, you're either going to figure out what typology is or you're going to stop reading the Old Testament because the Old Testament is an encyclopedia of types, uh, right? Maybe the simplest way to understand them would be illustrations in advance. Uh, they're stories or patterns or themes that prepare us to recognize and celebrate Christ. So, the whole sacrificial system is typological. And, and that type lands on Christ, that typology lands on Christ when John the Baptist points at Jesus and says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Boom. Uh, illustration in advance, Jesus. Uh, any, anyone else want to jump in there and explain typology? Go ahead. Maybe another example that you could use is uh, 1 Corinthians 10, you know, 1 to yeah. 6. And we're talking about, uh, you know, Israel passed through the Red Sea. They were baptized. What is the greater baptism that is spoken of here? It's, it's this baptism that we receive at conversion. Um, Israel drank from the rock in the wilderness. Uh, they were drinking from Christ. And the rock was Christ, yeah. Who, from whom the living waters flow. So yeah. as the Son gives the Holy Spirit. And uh, in Greek, the Apostle Paul uses these Old Covenant events as a type Two parts, for the yeah. New Covenant people. Yeah, uh, the, ex the exodus from Egypt illustrates our new exodus from sin. It illustrates our conversion, our salvation. Mm -hmm. And so uh, there's escalation. There's a, a greater than, a greater instance of in the New Testament. Right on. Well, I hope that's helpful. I, I, the whole goal of this uh, Going Deeper program is to help people get more out of their Bible reading. So I would imagine if, if you weren't familiar with typology and how allegory functions, you have found the Old Testament inscrutable. Um, so uh, hopefully that's very helpful. I think, unless I missed any, that's all the new books and letters we encountered this week. Is that right? Yeah. Perfect. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I want to actually go back then to, to Hebrews, Jesse. So get ready. You can jump in again, but, um, there's, there's something at the start of, uh, the book of Hebrews that, that I thought actually helped us out with something we started talking about last week. So, uh, Hebrews one, one to two says this long ago. At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So, Jesse, you were talking about how there's almost a sense in which Hebrews is, is, a, is a collection of uh, apostolic commentaries on Old Testament texts. And here, the relationship between the apostolic New Testament and the you know, works of the prophets, the Old Testament, is, is kind of spelled out for us. Um, the apostles don't say those Old Testament prophets got it wrong. You don't, you don't need the Old Testament. They didn't even know God. They were a bunch of you know, goat herders in the desert. Oh, my goodness, don't listen to them. 
doesn't say that at all. He says the prophets were the way that God spoke. So when the prophets spoke, God spoke. Mm-hmm. When the Old Testament speaks, that's the word of God. Mm-hmm. But, then they, but then they say, but now, so there's a ramping up. There's a yes, but even, even more so. But now in these last days, God has spoken by his son. The Greek actually there is in his son, en weos, right? In son. And so it's Jesus now, the, the apostolic Jesus, the, the apostolic gospel about Jesus. That is the you know, definitive declaration of God. So there's the sense in which they're saying Old Testament, yes, it's inspired, authoritative, and it's the word of God. And more so this, this word about Jesus is is that a useful way of thinking about the relationship between Old Testament and New? It's not wrong, right? It's yes and more, or yes and better. Is that helpful? I, I think so. And I think Dr. Tom Schreiner is actually really helpful here in his Hebrew commentary. He says, the words of the previous era are authoritative as the word of God, but they must be interpreted in light of the fulfillment realized in Jesus yes. Christ. Yeah, really good. So, and so the law and the prophets are still God's word, but they foreshadowed some good things to come, especially Jesus Christ. And so all the Bibles, God breathed and useful, all of the law and the prophets are still God's word, but they foreshadowed and anticipated the fuller and complete revelation to come. And of course, this revelation has come through the son himself. You sound very Lutheran. That's, oh. uh, that, oh. <laughs> that sounds very much like Martin Luther's uh, you know, Christological hermeneutic, right? Like Luther said, that, so what's I, that? I promise I'm Baptist. I don't want to get you in trouble with your church, right? I think, uh, uh, well, but I think, yeah, I don't think the Baptist would disagree with Luther there when he said that, that scripture is the cradle wherein Christ is laid, right? So everything's got to point to Christ. Yeah, Peter, were you, were you yeah, starting? And I don't think either of you are saying this. I think I would just be careful to um, say that somehow the New Testament is more inspired Mm. Um, I would be careful using more in that way. Yeah. How would we capture the sort of progressive movement to clarity? Like, so St. Augustine would, would say, uh, you know, that the Old Testament is the New Testament uh, hidden or the New Testament in shadow. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. So there's this movement from shadow to clarity. How would you capture that progression then? Yeah. So um, the first thing that comes to my mind, it's like having, you know, a handheld flashlight. And then when you come to the New Testament, it's a spotlight. Um, so more light. Yeah. So, you know, or you're driving your car, you got your headlights on and you, you can yeah. see in front of you. But then when you turn your high beams on, you can see a lot wider and a lot further. So you agree um, with the more, but you, you're saying that more needs to be carefully. More, more has to do with clarity. I don't more clarity. think more has to do with it's somehow more inspired. Oh, um, yes. No, no. I, okay. I was trying to figure out where you're going. I love yes, that. Both as completely inspired. I mean, Absolutely. Saying. Yeah. 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 They're both ultimately maximally inspired. Right. But, but there is a increasing clarity as we move into the New Testament. Is that agreed? Yeah, absolutely. Good. Yeah. Yeah. There's um, Pastor Paul, there's some, there's some illustration that you've used in the past about the cave and i don't know yes. if it's yours or if uh it's i stole else. it from i stole it from augustine okay just well, like piper stole it from lewis we're we're all thieves i mean you're not augustine come on or augustine depending <laughs> on who you're talking about right grass or yeah i think there's a difference professor. between the way canadians say it and americans but yeah augustine yeah. yeah um would you tell that because i i found that to be so very helpful when uh, thinking about this. Well, yeah. So, uh, you know, St. Uh, Augustine said that uh, that 
the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. And then uh, went on to sort of speak about a cave. Uh, the, the, the revelation of God is like a cave. Everything was there in the Old Testament. All the treasures were there. But as Peter said, but the illumination was lesser. It was, a, it was like a candle in a cave. But with the New Testament, it is as though the sun has dawned in the cave. And, and now everything is clear. There's nothing new there, but it is all seen in perfect relief and clarity. Yeah. yeah. Thanks. I always like that. Well, yeah. Thank you, St. Augustine. Well done, sir. <laughs> yeah. Probably got that from Plato. He probably stole it from C.S. Lewis, too. We all, <laughs> we all steal it from C.S. Lewis. All right. Well, uh, there, there's also something else I wanted to actually, Peter, this was your idea. And I think it's, it's really helpful. And, and Jesse, you alluded to it as well. The, the, the Paul's or not Paul, sorry, the, the epistle to the, to the Hebrews, that might be an interesting question for you as well. Uh, who wrote Hebrews, but, uh, the, the epistle to the Hebrews is a fantastic opportunity to talk about the new Testament use of, of the old Testament, uh, in just the first chapter, he takes uh, verses from uh, the Psalms. Uh, is it Deuteronomy? There's he quotes from the Law, the Prophets, and the Psalms, and applies all of it to Jesus. Some of it very intuitively, where you would say, "Oh, yeah, obviously that text is about Jesus," and then some of it not so intuitively. So, help us understand uh, how the New Testament uses the Old Testament, and how everything in the Old Testament—Law, Prophets, and Psalms—ultimately relates to Jesus. And in, in, in not just the law, prophets, and psalms, also the writings. Second Samuel mm -hmm. 7, 14 is, mm -hmm. is quoted here. I, I think probably the simplest way we can talk about it is escalation. And when we're talking about typology here, is that Jesus is the greater David, who's yeah. not just a son. He is the son of God. Uh, Jesus is the king who will sit on the throne of Israel forever. Jesus is the one who receives the promises of the Davidic covenant. So if you notice, 2 Samuel 7, 14, which is quoted here, is spoken of who? David. Mm -hmm. And the Psalms are speaking of who? David. And yet, who is the greater David to come? Yeah. It's Jesus Christ. And he's, yeah. he's the king of Israel. And so he, uh, Jesus is the greater David here. And I think that's probably the best place to start. Hmm. Anyone else want to jump in on that? I, I think, um, so this kind of goes back to the allegory thing, but I think it's important. And I've I've kind of been on a journey in the last year wrestling through this kind of thing because I've realized that how I was taught hermeneutics, the writer of Hebrews goes against everything I was taught. Um, he undermines some of the, the principles that I've been taught in the sense of um, you would never read Psalm 45, um, 6 and 7, and conclude that that's speaking about Christ apart from Hebrews. Yeah. You're just never able to do it. So authorial intent is true, but I actually believe that there's two authors. There's the human author who has a specific intent, and there's also the divine author. And yeah. the divine author actually often has a deeper meaning to a text. Yeah. And so I think that's what you see here in several of these passages. Like second, uh, the second Samuel one, it's actually, uh, Jesse, it's, it's actually in reference to Solomon because he's speaking to David about Solomon. And right after this verse, he mentions the iniquity of Solomon. Right. Um, so we know that doesn't apply to Christ, but yet the writer of Hebrews has no issue picking it up and showing that really the, the deeper fulfillment of this or the, the greater spiritual meaning is actually Christ himself. Um, so I've been wrestling through some of this, just, and I, I'm still on a journey with it, but 
understanding that, that yes, we're looking for the authorial intent, but there's more than one author to every book in the Bible. Have you interacted a little bit? That's brilliant. And to be clear, when we talk about there being one author of scripture, that's not to deny there are two, mm-hmm. meaning what you, what you, what you encounter when you do, uh, you know, the RMM is the sense that the Holy spirit is ultimately behind all of this, yeah. which is exactly what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, in first Peter one, verse 10, it says this concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. So, so there, you know, Peter says the funny thing is these Old Testament prophets often, first of all, they didn't understand what they were saying. Like sometimes they said some things and they're like, I wonder what that means. Uh, and and they, they studied their own writing. They wrote it down in the morning and in the afternoon, they're highlighting it and, and making notes and going, I have no idea what that means. Uh, and, but it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but, but us. And so Peter actually says, more important, more ultimate than how the original readers understood that is how you understand it now in the Holy Spirit on the other side of the empty tomb. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is something that is often not properly emphasized in hermeneutics classes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even in Hebrews 10, and I don't know if Jesse, you got there yet, but um, that incredible statement about where he quotes uh, from Isaiah, uh, Psalm 40 in uh, Hebrews 10, verse 5, where he says, Consequently, when Christ came to the world, he said... And, and I think based upon the context, he's saying Christ said this sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me in burnt offerings and sin offerings. You have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When you go to Psalm 40, it's, it's David speaking. Mm-hmm. The writer of Hebrews takes it and says, no, it's Jesus speaking this. It's yeah. Jesus who's come to do the will of his father. And, and so it's like, whoa, like what is going on here? Um, and that's often even what Augustine does, does with the Psalms over and over again. He shows that there's several places in the Psalms where it's almost as though the human author is invited into this divine conversation between the Father and the Son. And, and, and he, he, he conveys those words, but it's actually the Son speaking or the Father speaking, right? Yeah. Um, it's this beautiful dynamic, and I'm still kind of wrestling through it because I, I'm starting to see it a lot more now as I go through the Scripture. Um, I, don't, I don't know if any of you want to jump in on that or give your best resource because we want to be helpful to people. Uh, an accessible resource, meaning something that my mom could could read or something that, you, you know, the person sitting in the third row of your church could read that would help them uh, understand the, uh, the New Testament use of the Old Testament. Anybody? I don't know. I don't know an accessible one. I think for pastors or guys who are females or men who are studying theology, I think... Um, I just read this interpreting scripture with the great tradition by Craig Carter. Mm. Um, that was helpful. Yeah, there it is. What right are you there. holding up? Oh, is that the, was that on your desk? Wow. Yeah. Did you guys hang <laughs> out? Yeah, I know. Uh, they I have it on my desk right now as well. So. Wow, good. That's <laughs> um, fantastic. Good. I found that book very helpful. Now, it it is philosophical at points, so it might be hard for, for the average reader. But um, I don't know, Jesse, if you'd have anything else to recommend more lay, lay person. Uh, Jesse is digging through his book cabinet. This is awesome. This won't make sense to the podcast listeners. Um, from, typology to, from Typology to Doxology by Nacelli. 
So oh, uh, Andy, is that Andy Nacelli? Andy Nacelli. So oh, that was good. Helpful one. It actually goes through uh, New Testament usages of Old Testament passages, and then it walks through the apostolic hermeneutical principles. So. Good. All right. I was gonna. I was going to say that um, to kind of think about this too, just to put my two cents in, is that um, I've been drawn to biblical theology, and I think that biblical theology is basically a portion of what we're talking about, which I'll explain is like it's an unfolding of a scroll. And so when we look at the way that the scripture is written, we have to think of it as it was being written at the time, and then there are layers to it, right? So we look at like numbers and we read it for the original audience then, and then we look at it through the kingdom perspective. And then we look at it through the perspective of the church and then um, for our time now. And then of course the cross, ultimately the cross and how that shades everything, either looking forward to the cross or looking back to the cross. Um, and it's almost like an archeological dig of like the layers of the soil of the time and understanding the scripture in that way. And I have found that series, um, the silver series, I don't have one up here, but it would be a bit of a reach to get it. I can't remember the name of them, but they will take a topic and oh, yes, we'll the look new, at yeah, it. Yeah, the New Testament, uh, I know the one you're talking about. Yeah, New Testament yes. Theology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. New Journal so, of New Testament Theological Studies. Oh, there we go. He's yeah, yeah. like Google. You, ask, you like throw something at uh, <laughs> Pastor Paul and he like, you know, gives you the answer. But um, so those topics are really helpful because even kind of like going back to like Song of Solomon, when we were talking about that, not necessarily if it's allegory or is it marriage, but like the Bible has a sexual ethic all throughout. And we see that unrolling and, you know, becoming clearer and clearer throughout. Sometimes it's very clear and it doesn't change from the old to the new, but like um, or slavery. You could do this with topics, but then there are other redemptive ideas that are growing like a snowball throughout. Yes, that's the, one of my favorite the analogies, the snowball. It grows and grows and grows until it finally lands on Christ. Mm. Yeah, yeah, good. Hey, we had a question from a listener just while we were uh, jibber-jabbering there away about Hebrews. Uh, one of the listeners sent in a, a question um, asking what we thought about the authorship. Uh, I suppose I, I assumed that uh, folks didn't want to ascribe it to the Apostle Paul or, or that they were aware that that, that isn't common anymore. Uh, others can be surprised by that, even offended by that. Uh, so let's take a, a couple minutes and talk about that. Who wrote the epistle to the Hebrews? I have no Sorry, yeah, that, that, there you go. I was just going to make a joke. It was definitely a woman. That's uh, what I was going to say. I have no idea, but I, right. I heard... Thanks, I Rob Bell. Appreciate that. <laughs> I've heard one person Who's the host of interesting theory. Um, I've heard one person give a really interesting theory. Um, so the I forget his name in uh, that Paul was trained under in Acts. Oh, Gamaliel. Yeah. So I've heard someone say because he would have been so immersed in the Old Testament. I mean, Paul was knew the Old Testament inside and out. Some I've heard someone say to me that uh, Paul converted him and then he wrote the Book of Hebrews. I've never heard that one. Um, he has no grounds for it, but, oh. he, <laughs> but I like the idea just because, you know, he, he basically said he was so familiar with the Old Testament and, and Hebrews is as you guys have said. How is that not an argument for the Apostle Paul writing it? Well, right. Because I could push back and say if, if the Apostle Paul learned everything about the Old Testament from Gamaliel, if he went to Hebrew Harvard, um, why couldn't Paul have written it? 
Absolutely, yeah. So, Paul, yeah. do you personally think it was the Apostle Paul? Or? I'm not sure, to be to be honest with you. Uh, so, for most of history, it was assumed to be the Apostle Paul. Like, for instance, if you if you read uh, commentaries that were written before 1940, they just regularly will say, you know, as Paul said in Hebrews. Um, but the the notion now is that it lacks some some typical markers of Pauline authorship. There's there's no obvious um, greeting, you know, grace and peace to you from the I Paul an apostle. There's there's none of that, uh, and it it doesn't appear to be situational in the sense that most of Paul's letters are situational. So there are there are a few of those arguments. That being said, there are a lot of things in Hebrews that sound like stuff Paul said in in First Corinthians, like First Corinthians ten, for example, sounds like a chapter in Hebrews. So maybe it was a collaborative work. I one of the best arguments I've heard is that either Paul or Paul and Barnabas or Barnabas that one of the early in their ministry wrote it to encourage Jewish Christians in Rome, hmm. um, and uh, because it was intended to be passed around to a variety of churches, that it was going to be circular, passing around from house church to house church. That's the reason there's not the personal ascription at the beginning and the end. And the reason it sounds a little different is because it's one of the only letters he wrote to Jews. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that's a pretty solid argument, but I also, I don't feel the need to be dogmatic. That's for sure. Jesse, you, you must've landed somewhere because you preached on it. Uh, the Holy Spirit <laughs> is the, is the, yes. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I've wrestled back and forth. Like as I, as I read, uh, the the text of hebrews i do see a lot of uh pauline elements or what seem to be pauline elements but i also recognize there's a lot of differences i also recognize that uh different vocabulary can be brought up um in discussion uh with other audiences absolutely audiences um position in life like time of life uh circumstances there's a lot of things that can bring variation to language and so I would be very cautious to say it's not Paul just because um, his language, there's some variation there. Yeah, me too. You should hear how the difference is when I'm at home talking to my family than when I'm here talking to you, uh, right? Like we, we do use different different terms. I, yeah, you, you almost never speak Greek at home with your family. That's a good rule of thumb <laughs> for all you seminary grads out there. Good. Uh, well, Switching gears for a second, and and we've been operating at a, at a pretty high uh, level here for the last few minutes, a rarefied air. I, I want to kind of drop down to street level now and, and maybe address something that would be of concern to folks reading through this and also going through the COVID-19 experience at the same time. In, in Titus 3, which we read earlier this week, it says this. This is Titus 3, 1 to 2. Uh, Paul, obviously writing to Titus, a younger pastor, says, uh, remind them, so teach your people, he's saying, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy towards all people. So two issues here that I think are incredibly relevant. Uh, One is the issue of obeying authorities. Uh, One of the live issues in evangelicalism right now is what, what is the role of the Christian with respect to the civil government, the civil magistrate? Um, you're hearing, you know, Christians who are, you know, agitated rightly or wrongly uh, on whatever basis they're agitated, but agitated with the government and discussing, you know, when when do we obey the government? When do we not? Tim Challies was roasted uh, earlier this week for basic, for writing an article where he basically said how appreciative he is for government. 
Um, and there's almost, almost a growing sense in evangelicalism, particularly south of the border, that if you are thankful for government, you're sinning. Uh, that we are almost obligated to have an antagonistic attitude towards the government, which seems to be flatly contradicted, you know, by verse one there. So help me, help me understand why we're feeling the way we're feeling right now, and maybe press this text back on me so that I understand. I'll, I'll go for sure. Um, I think there are grounds for biblical civil disobedience. Um, and they're rooted in the scripture when there's a direct violation of God's authority or God's command or God's law. Um, and we have examples of that in the scripture that show us and model that, right? We've got Old Testament and New Testament examples of being civilly disobedient. So you've got like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refusing to bow to Nebuchadnezzar or yes. the New Testament, the apostles refusing to worship Caesar. I don't think we have the biblical ground at this point, and maybe I'm wrong, to be disobedient to our ruling authorities or to break the law um, because there's, there's not the equivalent to, like, worship me. <laughs> um, so you're saying there's, I, a, there's a line, there's a standard, there's a, there's a red line where uh wherein christians would be obligated to be exercise civil disobedience but we're not there yet is, it, is that that's right yeah, yeah exactly like and i think it's either in titus or in timothy where he says live quiet submissive mm, gentle yeah. lives and and that's the role i think that the majority of the time christians should be a good citizen and be models uh to their society and be to do good um, for the society in which they're placed. And so right at this moment that we haven't gotten to the point of uh, the government saying, you know, worship me, you know, I yep. don't think, but maybe others would disagree with that. So yeah. would it be fair to say there's a rule and there's an exception here? Is that, is yeah, that absolutely? Yeah. All right. What, so the rule is in general, honor the emperor in general, Romans 13, submit to the authorities over you. What's the exception then? The exception, I would say, is when the government um, claims an authority it doesn't have and places that authority upon people. So when the government says you can no longer worship God or you can no longer gather as saints, of course, not in this situation of COVID-19, but in the general, you know, regular norms of life, um, that's when they've taken an authority they haven't been given from God. What, so just to play devil's advocate, and it's yeah. it's not even that much of a stretch. Mark and I are smiling at each other because, yeah, because one of our friends is already <laughs> suggesting we're at this line. Uh, yeah. But what what if somebody said, "Hey, uh, you know, Hebrews ten says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves mm -hmm. together." The government has just told us to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Mm -hmm. um, so we have a, an obligation to obey God, not not uh, uh, the government. What what do you say there? Yeah. So I would say. A few things. So I think one, Hebrews 10 is not dealing with a context of a pandemic um, breaking out. Secondly, Hebrews 10 is, I think, primarily dealing with um, an exhortation to believers who don't want to gather. Right. Um, I don't think any of us are in a place where we're like, we don't want to gather. We want to gather. But because of our current circumstance, um, we can't gather, at least up to, at this point. Um, you know, one of the, the major concerns I have, and this came up in a meeting I was with another past, other pastors the other day, is I don't know where this comes from, 
but there just seems to be amongst Christians this ungodly suspicion of political authority always. Yeah. And, and, and what's interesting is uh, we were in this conversation with Paul Martin and a few other pastors yesterday, and, and Paul talked about how all these texts that talk about submitting to authorities, they're always connected to our witness of the gospel. Yeah. And, and so he, 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 Paul makes this direct connection between your submission to the authorities impacts your witness of the gospel into a, a lost world. And, uh, and so I don't know where this ungodly suspicion comes from that, that we always think the government is out to do evil. Um, now, I realize power corrupts and often the government can do evil, but, but the reality is, you know, Paul seems to argue in Romans 13 that the government is actually there to punish evildoers and to reward those who are obedient. Um, so I, I don't know how we address that in our Christian circles, um, but it just seems to be very prevalent where everything is suspicion towards the government. Jesse, I, if you don't mind, I'd love to pull you in on this because both Je you and Miranda uh, have experience living and ministering on both sides of the border. Um, is this issue equally complex on both sides of the border? Is it more complex? Because uh, we're, we're different cultures, right? And, and I'm wondering if, if this issue is half the, the, you know, embedded in the moment and half embedded in the culture. I'd love to hear your perspective on that. Yeah, I know Miranda's lived down here a lot longer than, than I have, so we, I might defer to her after this, but I certainly, like, I, I think there's a suspicion of government among among a lot of Christians that I've spoken to. You know, this is just one step down a slippery slope to losing all of our uh, freedoms uh, and all of our rights, uh, constitutional rights and our religious rights. And, and so I, I think uh, there has been some suspicion of government that, you know, um, the, the Democrats are you know, they're targeting churches. They're calling it Andy Bashir, our governor. Uh, I, I heard it was a huge firestorm online about this, about how, uh, you know, King Bashir has kind of said ex cathedra. I'm mixing analogies here, but he's kind of said uh, from the throne that churches can't gather. And he actually called them out, um, mm -hmm. churches. And so uh, he's come under a lot of uh, assault from Christians because of that. So I, I think there is, at least in Kentucky, from what I've seen, a suspicion of, of the governor. I think uh, people generally understand, like most people understand that there needs to be some, um, something that we have to do in terms of our large gatherings for the love of our neighbors. Mm -hmm. But I, I do think that there is a growing suspicion uh, the longer this quarantine extends. Miranda, and, and not only are you from uh, you know, most of your life in ministry is in, in the States, but in Texas, where I would, I would suspect they have a, like a more independent streak. Do you notice uh, a different approach here? Oh, yeah. I would say like Texas is equivalent to Quebec. So if you think of like how Quebecians would, um, that's not the right, right way to say it. I can't Quebecers, remember. But we, Quebecers, but you're from Texas. You can I say it however you like because you'll yeah. shoot us. <laughs> yeah, I'm hearing right now. That's what I also get asked I'm a lot. Kidding. Go ahead. Um, <laughs> Yeah, guns, Trump, and uh, no, no. Um, yeah, no, I would say like in Texas, they yeah. would have a strong, like they have a strong sense of independence as well. And actually the governor there has already, is going to start slowly opening up business, non-essential businesses and on Friday and then May 20th. So they're already moving towards that. There are a few states that um, have already done that. I think Tennessee and Arkansas and so it, the other thing too, to keep in mind is like Canada is 
huge in land, but small in population. Yeah. And so it's hard to compare the two. Um, and then like the cultures are different. And then there is a sense in some ways that, um, and the, the approach to government is different too. I mean, they're some similar, but then they're, they're different as well. Like, and I don't know enough about like politics and government to really tease it all out um, fully. I wonder if some of it is just that we've never been in charge. So we, we don't have the trauma of losing our influence. Like Canada, you know, Canada's political history, the nation of Canada is basically um, a compromise between Catholics and Anglicans, right? Like evangelicals were never really factored in. And so we've never had any influence. We've never had any authority. And so the, the law, we're not dealing with the loss of primacy in the same way that evangelicals south of the border are. Um, United States is, an, is a historical oddity. It's founded by the Puritans, right? I mean, it, there is a sense in, in which it's the evangelical homeland, um, and, but now it's not. And so there, there, when something's taken from you, there's a trauma. If you never had it in the first place, there's, there's not. So, so, I mean, that, I wonder if that contributes to some extent. Yeah, probably, I would say. And just political alliances and things like that. So like, um, like thinking of Kentucky and what the governor there did and calling out churches versus like basketball games. There was a clear yeah. distinction there of um, basketball games can meet, but churches can't. Or um, I think police officers were going to take down uh, the driver's license or the plates on cars for those who were doing like a drive-in uh, service. So there's some like true overreaching power mm -hmm. struggle yeah. between, you know, ruling uh, governing authorities that are taking more than they should. Um, but then there is a sense kind of like what we said is that the, ultimately the, govern the government is there for our good and recognizing that to have order rather than chaos, um, to have justice and truth rather than um, you know, the lack of justice and seeing it as God's God ultimately, if there are and there will be um, people who are corrupted by their power, that God will hold them accountable and keeping that eternal perspective of if you want to be like uh, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, and like resting in that and knowing that if there are things that are overreaching, that the Lord will take his vengeance and we don't have to be the long arm of justice. Very good. I, I'd love to, to spend just a minute. We're sort of running out of time and we've actually got some questions here. I don't know if we'll, we'll get to all of them. I want to try, but um, one of the, the, the other things I want to touch on there is verse two of Titus three, where it says to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle uh, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. I can't figure out whether we're worse at verse one or verse two, but we're bad at all of it, I would say. Like, um, help me understand, like, how does this verse relate to the need to defend orthodoxy, to, to the need, for, to the importance of truth? Like, truth is important enough that if Peter and I disagree, we should hash it out, right? And yet here, speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling, be gentle, show perfect courtesy help me uh, understand this and help, help our listeners figure out how to live this out at street level. Well, I mean, I think the first thing that comes to mind is actually an article that Wyatt wrote uh, several months ago where he talked about how Augustine communicated with Pelagian. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, Pelagian was, was deemed a heretic. And yet when you read Augustine's letters to him, the affection 
mm. by which he wrote to him, pleading mm. with him, um, is just so evident. He, he still refers to him as brother, right? And it seems like Augustine understood that, um, that, that even though you disagree with this individual and you think that his teachings are actually extremely dangerous, there's still a way to communicate to him like what Paul writes here in Titus, with gentleness, not with quarreling, um, to be courteous toward all people. And I, I don't know what it is, but I find, especially in our more reformed circles, we kind of take pride in being the theology police yeah. And, and we kind of have this attitude that, um, that, well, Jesus spoke harsh to people and therefore, you know, that the truth is offensive. Mm-hmm. But there's a difference between the truth being offensive and your tone being offensive. Mm-hmm. And I, I just find, especially on the internet, where tone can be always misunderstood, yeah. um, I just find we just lack empathy when we're communicating with people we disagree with on social media and it, it just seems like we're, we're so committed to truth that we've lost sight of what it means to actually love our enemies. Um, and, and, I, and I mean our theological enemies, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, it's just, it's really sad because I, I'm just picturing the world that do, doesn't know Christ and all they see on social media is Christians going at each other. And, and I, I used to be like that. Like, I admit that. Um, and then I came to a realization that most of my commentaries on Facebook and conversations with people aren't going to change anybody's minds. Right. So, um, so I don't know what the solution is other than the fact that we need to be repentive, repenting, repenting over this in our lives and, and seeking to um, follow Christ's example. But Mark, you look like you were going to jump in there. Yeah. And I mean, I, I would want to say, you know, as much as you can get to know uh, personally, some of the people you disagree with. I, I, I think I'm pretty well known for disagreeing with people sometimes, but I, I go out of my way to, I will drive to where you are and disagree with you personally face-to-face if you're anywhere within four or five hours of me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think you, you develop more empathy. Uh, you know, one of my favorite little quotes to give to people every once in a while is uh, Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon is a favorite amongst the reform circle and even outside the reform circle. But he was asked one time, do you think we'll see Wesley in heaven? And there's a particular angle in, in some reform circles that say Wesley's such a terrible heretic and an Arminian and we hate Wesley. And so somebody asked Spurgeon, do you think we'll see Wesley in heaven? And Spurgeon said, uh, you know, I, I doubt it. And this guy was quite satisfied with his first response and he went on to say I, I think he'll be so much closer to the throne of grace I won't even have a hope of catching sight of him get to know these people personally um, understand that you know there are people that we quote all the time uh, that we don't actually agree with entirely uh, you know I would quote Calvin without agreeing with an awful lot of what Calvin wrote so you know at the same time you know I, I go out on a limb here I, I won't name names but I mean there's there's people out there that I go, I don't agree with that person, but I, I don't need to call them a heretic. And I certainly need, don't need to create a big YouTube channel to destroy their ministry with very few exceptions. Most people out there, you know, I'll say one more thing. Paul in prison said, you know, some preach Christ uh, out of enmity for me, thinking they'll make things worse. But whether for false motive or true, Christ is preached. So, I mean, 
unless somebody is actually preaching heresy, I, 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 can, I can celebrate and rejoice in the fact that Christ is preached, even if it's not preached in the way I would most like to hear it preached. Well, Mark, I don't mind saying this is actually something I learned from you, uh, or, or I think watching your example was a real blessing to me. Uh, just watching uh, how you handled significant theological controversy about 10 years ago, um, I think, I, well, I know I learned a lot from that and applied it to some theological controversy that I was involved with a couple of years ago. And uh, it didn't come naturally to me, but I remember watching it in you and, and sensing this is the way of Jesus. So uh, if, if anybody out there wants to learn how to do this, uh, Mark is the guy to talk to. I, I'm a poor copy uh, of what I learned. From, and that way, if you don't like how I handled it, uh, I, I refer you to Mark. <laughs> Very well, good. You're, um, when, you, when you had that dialogue with Bruxy, um, and I just remember you talking about, you know, we're so quick to go to the term heresy, but there's probably like seven levels right. before you get there. And, and I, I just thought that was so helpful. So, well, I think in today's world where, you know, like Fox news and, and CNN, where, where the, the, or the media context is, has figured out how to monetize polarization. I think we just wake up in the morning with an inclination to lean too far left or too far right. And, and there's no incentive uh, to, to look for shades, um, to look for degrees. I think there are many degrees between uh, my theological ally on every point and, and a heretic that needs to be harassed. Mm -hmm. I think there are many, many stages between there. Uh, there yeah. might just be a good friend who's wrong on seven or eight issues. Uh, I have that category, and I, I think we should recapture that uh, mm -hmm. for sure. Jesse, do you want to jump in on that? Yeah, in our sound in our soundbite culture, right? It's so easy to paint others, our theological opponents, as straw men and not characterize their arguments really what they're doing. And sometimes we'll say, well, if you you follow your premises to uh, the right conclusion, to what to what to the conclusion it leads, then uh, you're a heretic, you know. Like if you follow your Arminian conclusions uh, to their ends, you're, you're really Pelagian. You know, like it's just, it's, it's kind of absurd um, how we uh, characterize uh, people in our soundbite culture. We'll, we'll paint them in a light that they would not even accept. And I think it's, it should always be our goal to not just be gracious in our speech, but also to be accurate in our representation of our opponents in a way that they might accept themselves to be. Yeah, well said. Tim Keller, I think, says that always state your opponent's argument in the way that they'd be happy to accept it. Yeah, well said. We, uh, we're running out of time, but I'd, I'd love to at least get get this question here. I want to be thankful to those. People are sending in questions now, which is great. Uh, we've, we've probably got time for one, and then uh, we'll just we'll end uh, by looking at, at a psalm. But uh, I've got a question here on uh, the use of Song of Solomon. So what are some applications of, of this book to both marriage and Christian life? So We've said that it's about both. Uh, how anybody want to take a stab at how you would apply that to a marriage and and to just an individual wanting to be the the, the bride of Christ? One quick, really easy is celebrate marriage. If yeah. we see that marriage is a good gift from God, mm -hmm. it should be rejoiced in, and it and even seeing the way in which um, the intimacy between the husband and the wife is a mm -hmm. gift within the you know the marriage bed is a gift from God and we should celebrate that and be happy about that. And in our marriages, it should be a joy to be married. You know, you don't call 
the the old sayings of you know I had people in my life like the old lady they call their wife the old lady or yeah. the old ball and chain the like that yeah like that's okay. not the way in which a biblical representation of marriage yeah, that doesn't show up in Song of Solomon yeah no, you, it doesn't you, 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 I, I gotta go home to my old lady nope yeah. not gonna happen there yeah I think awesome. find, find ways to delight in your spouse, even away from the sexual aspect of mm -hmm. Solomon. I mean, you see so much delighting in and rejoicing in and speaking about the other. And one thing that I, I would always say to somebody in, in marriage is um, find ways to genuinely compliment your spouse. And mm -hmm. the amazing thing is people like getting complimented. So if you can say, I love, how you look or I love how you do this or you know that person liking the compliment begins to do that more often if you if you seek the things uh, if, if you're intentional about seeking the good you will generally find it if you find yourself looking for things that bug you and that you can criticize you'll find those too yeah I'll get I'll give one for the Christian life uh, I, I love that, you know, this, the retreat, the marital retreat that is at, at the centerpiece of Song of Solomon's. Let's go and hide ourselves in the crag of the rock and let me see your face in this different place. And, you know, and uh, the little foxes that spoil the vineyard. I, I would say um, pursue the Lord. Set aside retreat time with the Lord. Your every morning should be a little marriage retreat between you and God where you, where you explore, where you delight, uh, where you shut out the little foxes. Um, you know, so that you can enter into the Garden of Delights. Uh, so, you know, I, I would say that's that's part of what it means to respond to your husband, Christ, uh, the way that you should. Um, we we stumbled onto something that I, I want to keep a hold of. Uh, the first two episodes that we did together, we ended uh, by praying out of a psalm. And uh, I thought we could do Psalm 39, which was one of the psalms we covered this past week. Uh, it, it's, it's a psalm wherein we are challenged to think about our own mortality, which I think is appropriate to the times. Psalm 39, verse 4, O Lord, David says, make me know my end. What is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. I think that's been one of the gifts of COVID-19. Um, it, it hasn't changed the death rate in Canada. The death rate in Canada before COVID-19 was 100%. Uh, the death rate in Canada right now is 100%. Um, what it has changed is the awareness of death. People are talking about it. People are thinking about it. And I think we would all agree that's, that's got to be good um, because in, in our culture, there is the illusion of security. There is the illusion of immortality. And that's one of the reasons why people don't uh, consider the state of their soul before God. And, uh, and, and so I, I just, you know, I was thinking maybe Mark, you could read Psalm 39. We could, talk a minute or two about mortality and, and the relationship of an awareness of mortality to the gospel, and then we'll pray. Uh, Psalm 39, to the choir master, to Juthan, a psalm of David. I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. O Lord, make me know my end. And what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. 
Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing there in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of fools. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. Amen. Yeah, so somebody help me understand the connection between an understanding of one's mortality and um, a preparedness for one's eternity. Is it Ecclesiastes that says, um, let us number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom? Is that, is that Ecclesiastes? That's Psalm 90, but That's Psalm 90. It's, it's certainly the same idea as expressed in Ecclesiastes, yeah. Yeah, there's when we realize that our life is a vapor and that we are sojourners and strangers and pilgrims uh, here on the earth, that this is not our home, we tend to treat it as such. We, we, don't, we don't tend to build up our riches uh, to um, build bigger barns. Uh, we tend to invest in eternal things, in souls. We tend to um, look to what, what is of eternal value that I can procure eternal wealth where uh, rust and moth will not destroy. And what am I pursuing with my life? Am, am I obeying the Lord? Am I following his commandments? Am I obeying the, the great um, uh, commandment to love my neighbor, love, to love God, love my neighbor, and then also to uh, go and make disciples? What, how am I investing my time here um, while, I'm, while I'm a pilgrim? So I think uh, realizing that your home is not here is a result of recognizing your mortality and that your eternal home will be later. No, that's good. It's good work. I think Hebrews 11, the great cloud of witnesses, um, what, what is so powerful about that passage is that all of those individuals are what you could call heavenly minded. Mm -hmm. um, they're completely focused on the, the, the hope that's to come. And that focus actually causes them to use their time here to the best of their ability for the kingdom. And, uh, and so they, they understand they only have a certain amount of days, but they know that they're living for something that's eternal and grand. And so they're actually going to use every moment of their time mm -hmm. for the greatest purposes, which is God's purposes. And um, so I think our mortality, it, it, it should cause us to reflect and go, how do I want to use however many days God has given me? And if COVID-19 has said anything to us, there's no yeah. guarantee that I'm going to live to 80 yeah. In fact, you know, I, I had my daughter two weeks before everything was shut down. And though I wasn't worried for my daughter, it, it actually made me have to think about my daughter's mortality. Mm. And, and it made me realize that we are so convinced that we are going, that our children will outlive us. Yeah. But there's no promise of that. And, and to, to face that reality and then to know, okay, but we have this eternal hope. 
and I'm living in light of that eternal hope um, should drive us and motivate us to make the most use of the time, to redeem the times, Paul says. That's good. Mark, was it you? Did you say last week, I think it was you, uh, that John Owen had, I think he had 11 or 13 kids and only one of them lived to adulthood. Was it you that mentioned that? If it wasn't you, it's still true. Um, Whoever it was, maybe that was in a different conversation, but uh, I can never remember whether John Owen had 11 or 13 kids, but he had many children and only one of them lived to adulthood. Um, And he outlived uh, that child. She she died in adulthood. But uh, there's a sense in which living in that context, a context where you, you can't escape your own mortality, people die, loved ones die, forces you to, to think about eternal things, ultimate things. It, you know, in, in Psalm 90, where the, you know, Moses says, who considers the power of your anger? Like, who really stops to think about why it is that our lives are a breath? Why, why, are, not, why are we not eternal? Why, why does something so beautiful as human life, why does it come to an end? And it gets so mortality gets us thinking about things that matter, ultimate things. And if that happens, if that's the result of COVID-19 in, in our Canadian, you know, upper middle class, super secure, you know, neighborhoods, then it, it will have been a gift from God. Hmm. All right. Well, let's uh, let's let's use that then to pray and, um, and just to pray for our neighbors, to pray for their salvation, that they'll they'll feel the ground shaking underneath them and they'll want to build their lives on the rock who is Christ. Uh, so let's do that. Our heavenly father, uh, we, we can thank you for everything. Uh, we can thank you even for COVID-19 Lord. We can mourn uh, with those whose lives have been devastated by this pandemic. We can ask you to, to comfort them and be gracious to them. And even still, we can thank you for it. Lord, if it unsettles our neighbors, if it, if it causes them to consider the power of your wrath, the, the, the devastation of human sin, the horrific impact of our separation from you, and if, if that consideration leads to an appreciation of Jesus Christ upon the cross, then, Lord, it will have been worth it. And uh, we would pray that work. We would pray it applied to everyone in our neighborhoods. Uh, that our that our neighbors would be unsettled, not that they would be knocked down, not that they'd be destroyed, but they'd be shaken and wakened uh, to the insecurity of their situation, and they would shelter uh, under the blood of the Lamb. Lord, that's our great prayer, and uh, we ask that you do it, and uh, that you would let our eyes see it. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you for being with us. Uh, we used all of our time. We One of my uh, sort of commitments is that we won't go past 9.30. It's 9.29. I think we should ride this right to the end. Uh, but uh, we, we had a lot of ground to cover. We introduced a lot of books. Hopefully this was useful for you. And uh, thanks for sending in some questions. We will uh, we'll get better at getting uh, to all those questions and anticipating them. But uh, thank you. Thanks for being with us. And uh, God willing, we'll be here next Thursday again at 8 p.m on the Gospel Coalition Canada Facebook page, the End of the Word Facebook page, and the End of the Word YouTube page. Thanks for being with us. God bless. We'll see you again next week.